Investment Management Operations is brought to you by Intelligo. Intelligo is the premier due diligence platform delivering innovative pre-investment background checks and continuous subject monitoring for some of the most sophisticated asset allocators. Their individual and company background check reports blend the critical discernment of human experts with cutting-edge AI, ensuring you receive the most thorough and rapid insights. Groups like Common Fund, Adam Street Partners, Felicitas Global Partners, and past Capital Allocators guests Hamilton Lane, AIM13, and NEPC leverage Intelligo to mitigate risk and enhance their operational due diligence process. Visit Intelligo.ai to learn more. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at capitalallocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Antoine Fortier. Antoine Fortier is the CFO for Man Group, a $140 billion asset manager focused on liquid alternative hedge funds. Since our recording, Antoine has passed off the official title of COO, but still maintains responsibilities in HR, risk, and communications. Our conversation covers Antoine's career path to Man Group, the dynamic history of the firm, and managing regulations across a large global footprint. We discuss managing human capital, interfacing with clients and investment teams, and driving differentiation through technology. We close on headwinds facing new hedge funds and successful elements of M&A integration for asset managers. Please enjoy my conversation with Antoine Fortier. Well, Antoine, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. Tell us about your background and the path to your current role at MAN. Happy to. So, current role is CEO and CFO for MAN Group. MAN Group is a $140 billion asset manager focused on kind of liquid alternative hedge fund headquartered in the UK, listed on the FTSE. And I've been a man 12 years at this point. Before man, as you can probably tell by now, I'm French, French born, educated, went to university in France, did a series of internships as part of my degrees. One of them actually took me to the US. I lived in Florida for six months when I was in my early 20s, which was great. And then started my career in investment banking, joined Goldman Sachs as an M&A analyst pre-financial crisis based in the Paris office, looking at all sorts of transactions involving French companies in any sector. I wasn't specialized then. Did that for two years, liked it very much, but met my wife week two of training at Goldman and she is British. So I ended up losing the sort of location battle and moving to the UK. I describe myself as happily stuck in the UK since then. And in order to move, I changed team internally within Goldman. So joined a team that had just been set up called Peter Seal. It was within the asset management division, a billion dollar private equity fund had been set up to buy stakes in hedge funds. That was just before the financial crisis, a pretty interesting time to be involved in 
financial services industry and hedge funds in particular. Did that for a couple of years. Through that, I met someone who's still a friend of mine called John Sorrell. And then in 2009, we were about to sell the portfolio to a large Swiss-based investment bank, which since then quite recently disappeared. The sell didn't happen, but I lined up another job interning at Goldman to join their fixed income division doing rate structuring and sales. Did that for a couple of years. It wasn't really for me. In parallel, I was chatting to John, who was still a Goldman as well. And in 2011, I moved to Man Group with him in the finance team. So where I am now in a different role doing acquisition and strategy for the group. Did that for four years. Gave me a good overview and understanding of our business, the industry in which we operate. It also was quite hands-on because at that time we had to restructure the group post-financial crisis. And then after that, I moved to one of the investment teams called ManHL, which is one of the five investment teams that we have in the business. First as CEO and then co-CEO, in effect running a team of 150-odd investment professionals, quant particular, quant engineers, running the strategies. And that was great, great fun. Business was doing well and still does well. But after six, seven years, I got sort of tapped on the shoulder and asked if I wanted to move back to where I started in the finance team as CFO. That was not quite two years ago. Very happily said yes. And here I am. How do you make the distinction between the role you play as CFO as well as the COO? In organization, bear in mind, we're listed as three or four key aspects to the role. The first one, is, as any CFO, is ensuring that the integrity of the numbers, the control environment, is that it should be. The second is with those numbers helping the business strategically, so linking between the finance team and the strategy of the business. The third is managing the external community shareholders in particular, and the board that can represent shareholders uh, at the company. And then Finally, helping the business strategically via M&A. It's strategic, it's fairly defined in its remit, but because we're listed, it has quite a big remit and I sit on the board as well. The CEO function, I see it as enabling the business, making it run smoothly and serving the strategy of the business more operationally. So it's all about the infrastructure, the core infrastructure of the team and making sure that we can maintain and improve an infrastructure that enables to deliver for our clients. Maybe to back up a little bit and just give an overview of MAN and the silos and some of the intricacies with being a publicly traded entity. MAN Group is $140 billion of AUM, roughly. It's actually a pretty ancient company. It was founded in the late 18th century in the UK, not very far from where we had quartered in the city of London, and then had various shapes and forms. And from 2007, became a pure play asset manager focused on alternative hedge funds with a strong quant bias through the business HL. That journey took place through acquisitions, started with acquisition of HL back in the early 90s. Then we acquired a series of fund of hedge fund business, 2012 FRM, which created our brand for fund of hedge fund and solutions business. In 2010, we acquired GLG, which was a discretionary fund manager, hedge fund, and long only manager headquartered in the UK. And then more recently acquired a business called Numeric based out of Boston, which does quant equity. And then finally, a few years ago, acquired a small private market business, which then helped us start a private market business. So at this point, we offer alternative high alpha content across the spectrum from long only to alternative quant discretionary single manager, multi-manager. 
our focus and strength is around liquid alternative and quant in particular, but we're expanding in areas like private markets, as I mentioned. Shape of the group roughly 1,700 people, 1,000 based in the UK, 400 in the US between Boston, New York, Charlotte, and a couple of smaller offices, and then smaller offices throughout the globe. Our clients are very large institutions. 80% of our UM is institutional in nature. We serve the largest pension plan in the US and Europe and elsewhere, largest sovereign wealth funds, some large insurance companies. And then the remaining wealth channels is all intermediated via mostly private banks. So it's a very institutional sales force and distribution model. And you talk about silos. We don't think of them as silos, even though we've kept the brands, because ultimately in our industry, when you have a brand that's more than 30 year old, it's pretty ancient and it has a lot of value. But really, we are an integrated asset manager. The brand's really represented by the investment teams that support them. The rest of the infrastructure is centralized and unified. Starting with sales, we have 240 people in sales and marketing. They're organized in around 18 different regional teams, and they serve all our content. They are product agnostic. The function is to own the client relationship and make sure they understand what the client cares about, what the current allocation is, what the future allocation might be, and what's the process to get there, and highly slot in one of our strategies or solutions in that process. And then the infrastructure around it, middle office, back office, finance, compliance, legal, HR, is also all centralized, coordinated. There are obviously some differences in doing the middle office functions for a private market manager and a quant startup fund, but it's still one large team. We think that gives us great capabilities and scalability in our industry, having this very unified infrastructure underpinned by a lot of technology investments. Last bit on being listed, it's quite unique in our specific space as a liquid alternative manager than not many of us. The truth is being listed is something that partners probably 25, 30 years ago decided on. At this juncture, nobody in the business was around at the time that listing happened. We don't have a controlling shoulder, so we're purely listed on the market. It has some implications for us, obviously, on reporting, transparency, governance structure, makes us very institutional in nature, which a lot of clients like. But also, more importantly, and something I often say to clients, it forces us on having really one focus, which is delivering in the business that we're in, which is asset management. Quite often in our industry, businesses start failing when the founders who become quite wealthy through their successes start having pet projects. And the truth is, no matter how much I like it, we'd never buy a sports team. Our focus is on delivering our fine solutions for our clients. When you have a large global footprint, how does the team manage the regulatory environment? So you're publicly traded, but you also have a US arm. Exactly. They don't necessarily compete. It adds layers of complexity. So we operate probably in a dozen or more regulated environments, the main ones being the UK, US, Hong Kong, Ireland. What you need to have is the right organizational structure around it. And by that, it's how do you set up reporting lines, boundaries, processes, flow of information so that at all points you're on top of the SEC regulatory evolution which could be a different agenda from what's happening in Luxembourg, for instance. So all that comes, you know, as always in a business, the quality of the people you have, but also how you structure them, how you empower them and give them a defined remit, the support around that and the processes to make sure that this escalates what needs to be escalated at various points. Being listed, governance is obviously a key aspect 
of our business, and it all cascade down from the board. So the board sets overall strategic direction for the business on behalf of shareholders, but also it sets the risk appetite and the governance framework around that, so the guardrails around. And that's a document that we go through annually and revisit. We list 25, 26 main risk categories for the business. And against each risk, we'll have a kind of appetite statement. Some are very obvious. Illegal activity, we have zero appetite for. But in terms of investment risks, there's version of risk you might want to take or counterparty risk, for instance. And this is more qualitative and gets discussed. And then that gets cascaded down throughout the organization through various processes and committees that own some of those risks and are responsible for monitoring them, escalating them, and getting rid of it. Last point I make is in our business, we are paid to take risk, but there's only certain risk we're paid to take. The plenty of risk which clients don't want us to take. And so the exercise from my seat is to ensuring that our resources and efforts are made focused on keeping the risk that we're paid for in focus and minimizing as much as possible all the risks that we're not paid to take. Operational counterparty liquidity risks that people have forgotten, but 13, 14 years ago in financial crisis, liquidity risk was a big topic and then it disappeared and suddenly it's back in fashion. What does a day look like for Antoine? A lot of meetings. During COVID, I have three young children. Most people, young children, end up doing some hoop schooling. And my then five-year-old daughter, whose best friend's mother was a frontline doctor in the UK, came back up once and said, well, Laura's mother is a doctor and you do emails and you do meetings. <laughs> I was like, well, that's true. Go back to what I do in my day and the main functions. So some of it is managing my team and the project that I do. Some of it is running the governance aspects of our business. Some of it is being the interface between our group and advisors or shareholders. So if you bring back what it means to my day, I might start with you know a breakfast meeting with a banker or an advisor. I might then follow up with a team meeting with my direct reports and we'll discuss on a weekly basis what are the key projects that we're working on, what's working well, what's working less well, who in the team is doing well and issues that need to be escalated. I'll then follow up with a couple of meetings on specific projects or topics that are ongoing and that are being tracked. I possibly will have lunch with someone at large in the business just to connect, make sure I have the right touch points, understand what's happening on investment side or team that I'm not that close to, but it's important. Follow up with a board call, board meeting, could be one of the subsidiary board, it could be the main board, and we'll discuss some of the topics that get discussed. And I might have a shareholder call at the back of it. It involves talking a lot to people, receiving quality of information, processing them, sorting them, and then making sure that the people that work with me and around me are sent in the right direction and have all the means to deliver. How do you interface with clients? My role on the client side is actually probably more limited than you'd imagine. Partly, I suspect, given the size of the organization. I mentioned the fact we have 240 people doing sales and marketing, and then we see like 500 people in investment teams that are kind of the main point of contact. Partly because as a CFO, CEO, it's, let's be clear, you know, the first person that the client wants to see, you know, the person actually managing the money. So my client interaction will be usually if you have pretty strategic client discussions and they want to understand about the business, culture, the control environment, the governance. Recently, we had, for instance, we just won that mandate next year, very large Japanese clients who had seen that we had done acquisition in the past, understood that we were business built through acquisition and they wanted to understand our MNS strategy. 
That was an example of a specific client interaction that I might have. It's not a huge part of my role. How do you interface with investment teams? So investment teams, obviously one of the key drivers of the business. I sat in one of them for six years. When I talked about the CFO and CEO role, a lot of where the value comes from is being able to deliver resources to the investment teams. So my interactions will be around delivery and tracking of resources, investments on the finance side. So headcount plans, helping up set up a team, hiring a team, ensuring that we have the right balance sheet resources behind the projects, to be CapEx investments or seed investment. It's quite a lot of strategies that those are investments on the finance side. On the more operation side is ensuring that we have the right connectivity with could be sort of administrator, custodian, ensuring that we have the right talent pipeline, that the grad program is set up well. So it's all around serving the needs of investment teams and removing some of the business infrastructure decisions from them so that they can focus on what ultimately they're paid for, which is delivering for clients. That's the reason we have a large centralized infrastructure is ultimately we think there's value in being able to provide that infrastructure to investment teams. And it's important because our clients want that. And what we don't have, maybe differentiators from others, is a top-down investment view. So we don't have a CIO, a single CIO who says, this is the way Mad Group will think about two-year rights. So this is a positioning that we should have in oil. Each investment team, small or large, is empowered to have their own investment decisions, which sometimes conflict, by the way, provided they reflect their and follow their own risk guideline and client guideline. That's what they're here for. But we want them to do it in, in infrastructure that I'm here to provide. We would love to hear the role of technology and how that role is played at Man Group. Technology is a huge, huge part of our business and should really be part of most businesses if they want to remain competitive. But in our case, we were really founded as an asset manager around a quant systematic business. And so in order to be able to deliver those quant strategies, quant returns, you need the technology. So it's really part of the DNA. Around 40% of our headcount is quantum engineers. It's big numbers. That's 500 plus. We spend $120 million just on technology. It's a big aspect of what we do. The way we organize, we have call them an alpha technology team and then a more infrastructure technology team. The alpha technology team is in charge of all the technology that's required up to the decision to invest. And then the infrastructure technology takes over at that point. So the alpha technology will be mostly, not all, but mostly embedded within investment teams and they'll help build the right data pipes, data infrastructure, the right compute environment, right server environment to process this data, run the algorithm, have the right optimizers, and then the connectivity to trading. Once we trade, everything relies on the central basically mega database, which holds all trades information first. We call it ROSA. You might be a discretionary portfolio manager based in Hong Kong or quant based in Boston or uh, someone buying houses in Charlotte, North Carolina. Eventually, all the sort of accounting of your trade and middle back office will rely on that technology, which is very powerful. And then all that gets exposed to the firm via all sorts of reporting, which is built technology. So technology is a huge part of what we do it helps on the investment process. It helps us being better investors, create a moat around that. It also maintains a very lean and efficient infrastructure and that enables us to scale very well. So when you have such a large organization in 
globally, touching a lot of different pockets. You have private investments, hedge funds, long only. Does that lean you to build versus buy? We do both. Sometimes we borrow as well with open source. The decision is mostly a sort of pragmatic economic decision. If I look at the sort of three aspects, so when you have completely novel requirements on the investment side, we'll tend to build. So certainly all the infrastructure that's required for trading on strategies that would have been built in-house. However, in some cases, we do use open source if we think that there's a component that's required for analyzing data in a way and open source has provided a solution. There's no point building something that's already there. The quid pro quo, by the way, is we contribute to open source as well. So we have a repository on GitHub that is quite successful. We track the number of stars that we have. We actually made the decision to start commercializing some of the technology that we've built around some open source software that we provided. So we build open source very much symbiotically. But then we have to acknowledge other aspects of our business where it's more niche, say, an accounting system for finance, an ERP type system or a compliance system. Here, people do that well. There's no IP and you want to find, therefore, the best solution that you can externally. And our work is obviously finding that monitoring, but integrating it with the systems that we've built. So we do both. It's an economic decision. Sometimes it starts with something we build. And after a few years, usually becomes tech debt. We'll reassess, okay, is it still valid for us to build this? Are there better solutions elsewhere? Should we look at open source? Should we look at vendors? And that's a sort of natural cycle, which really is driven by the pragmatic decision of time to delivery and spend to delivery. How do you manage the flow of ideas at a firm like yours? We have great difficulty, but we try and extract the best from them. You're mostly and always surrounded by very smart people. If you hire smart people, I worked in a quantum before, you expect them and you want them to have great ideas. Often your constraint is not the idea generation, it's the resources you have to deploy to deliver on those ideas. A lot of the balance that we navigate is, on the one hand, you want that creativity emergence of ideas. You don't want to hamper it on a top-down basis, but at the same time, you want to have a process, top-down process that says, those are the two, three, or four, five strategic initiatives that we believe in firmly and will push and divert more resources. That balance is key. In our industry, which is fast moving, you need to reassess those decisions fairly frequently. And there's not many decisions that you can sit tight and look at for the next three to five years. You need to make sure there's various checkpoints throughout and check the delivery versus expectation versus environment around you. But keeping that balance is very important. When I was managing quant and engineering team, I always have the view that there's an infinite demand for engineering resources, but obviously a constrained supply. So the part of the job is to make sure that the supply gets delivered to the best ideas at all time, but not kill the sort of idiosyncratic, very brilliant idea that might still emerge somewhere in the system. How do you approach hiring and scaling? One of the reasons that I love working at Man is it might feel quite large, 700 employees, but it's still a pretty lean, entrepreneurial, informal culture at heart. And I contrast that with other institutions I worked at that have you know, orders of magnitude more employees. Here, we all sit in London on three floors. There's no barriers of assistance to get into my office. There's no barriers of assistance to get into the CEO's office. That's something we want to keep culturally. How do you approach scaling then? Because you don't want to lose that cultural attribute. The main bit is empowering your people and creating the infrastructure around 
if I look at what we've done in our HR and talent teams, for instance, can bring some of their personality and be genuine and informal and not have the weight of a big organization overhanging over them. So I see part of my job in making sure that I have a very solid team, the right control environment, but at the same time, I don't want to recreate what you might find in the sort of 200,000 employee bank that would not suit our culture. So those are the discussions we're having. What are the right sort of cultural attributes that we want to keep? D&I, the decision-making process, how much formality do we want? How much informality do we want? How much the red tape do we need to have versus red tape we should remove? Those are discussions we have as a management team very regularly to make sure that we keep what I think is a quite unique part of the DNA, this fry balance of institutional framework, the quite entrepreneurial culture. When you hire people, what are the skills you're looking for? We have 200 people, 185 people broadly in, in operations. It ranges, obviously, they have some roles that are quite sort of functional. And what you want is people that are very diligent, who you can trust, have the right cultural attributes, will escalate those issues. Two people that are very strategic the way you manage a relationship with some of the largest custodian administrator when we pay them tens of millions of dollars is fairly strategic and fundamental to our firm and our clients. So the backgrounds can be quite different. The recruitment we try to harmonize, we have a centralized recruitment team. So we make sure that people go through similar filters, but obviously they adapted the type of job, the profile of the job, seniority, the skill that are required. Look at lands like diversity. But the range of profiles you have are different. The last point I make is, in particular post-COVID, the location of hiring is something has changed. So four years ago, we would have expected everyone to be based in London or New York, and that would have been it, maybe Boston, and that would have been it. Fast forward now, we've built a team in Bulgaria, mostly engineers and researchers, which we didn't have before. We have a team in Manchester. We have people scattered throughout the U.S., we have people in my team that might be based somewhere in the Midlands in central of the UK. I think that hybrid point that we discussed earlier, for the right roles, can create flexibility on where you are and enable you to tap a much larger pool of talent, in some case, or diverse talent as well, which I think is a great attribute. And it's a strength for particular larger groups who can have the ability to manage that additional complexity that inevitably it creates. There are a number of hedge funds that are coming to market. What are your thoughts on the hedge fund environment today? I think it's hard to come to market. Particularly what you read is that the few hedge funds being launched. I think the bar to set a fund is a lot harder. So even 10 years ago, you could launch a fund with $50 million and expect that in a year or two, you had half a billion. You had very, very well with half a billion of AUM. Fast forward, the fees are not what they used to be. And then the requirements, regulatory compliance, operational requirements are also not what they used to be. They're a lot greater. I think the bar, therefore, is higher, which is why you see platforms do well and you see businesses like us do well and quant firms do well. The natural evolution of any industry, possibly, but in particular ours, is one where it ends up concentrating a fair amount. The quant firms, for instance, I think back in 2008, according to account, around 40% of the top hedge funds, top 10 or 20 hedge funds were quant or quant-enabled. Fast forward now, 80% of them are. And so the requirements for that are greater. I mean, you see always hedge funds because you always have talented people and at some point they want to do it themselves. I think it's harder. And I think certain people like the platforms like ourselves have created an environment where we try to provide the, 
infrastructure that enables people to express their investment creativity fairly freely and a very decent living through that, but not have the hassle of running their own firm. I think that's something you might see more of in the future. What advice would you give to someone in a seat or looking to get into a role similar to yours? Those roles are defined, I think, in two ways, which are not exclusive. One is the sort of a core requirement, and it's around the operation side and the finance side. But they become, in my opinion, a little more interesting or very interesting when you can also bring your own perspective on it and make them more strategic. So I think the advice I would give is understand the environment in which you are, the business in which you are, what's really required of you, but how you can help from your seats drive the business forward and be more strategic. I mean, the way I used to describe it, being a CEO is partly what people need you to be and partly what you want it to be as a role. It's a very amorphous title. Certainly, I'm elevating myself more than I should be allowed to. But when I was at Goldman, the number two of Goldman was called CEO. And I suspect he was not making sure that the NAVs were reconciled. It's a title that's quite amorphous. So as long as you understand what the core requirements are that you can deliver on that, I think it's a fantastic role in any organization because it plums you into the heart of it and you can really drive it forward. The key aspect, therefore, is to be able to have a strategic insight and then from there, see how you can progress in your career. Back to M&A. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the M&A environment from your seat. Overall, M&A rarely works, and in particular asset management, it's very, very, really successful. If you think of what you're buying, it's a set of contracts, contracts with clients, you're managing their money, and contracts with individuals who show up to manage the money. So it's the most immaterial type of acquisitions you can do. So our approach has always been very, very cautious as a result. You want to make sure that you find businesses and teams that have genuine alpha, genuine ability to add return. You don't want it to be random. In our case, we want them to be able to scale as well. It's important that they can grow. You want to make sure that they're people you can work with. Too often in our industry, it's populated with assholes. So we have quite strict no-asshole policy, and that's one of the filter you add. And then finally, because of what I described, if you meet all this, you want to make sure that the relationship between price, value, and payment, contractual nature of payments, is aligned so that incentives are well aligned along all the parties that participate in the transaction. That's quite hard, but if you can do it, if you do it well, it's very, very valuable for a business and can help a business strategically. I say the most acquisitions fail, but if you do it well, was the case with man on several acquisitions we've done, you can transform your business. After all, man is today an asset manager because someone 30 years ago decided to acquire a $100 million, five-people business based in a corner of London. So it can be very successful. The environment today is an interesting one because everyone expects more transactions to happen, quite defensive transactions. You know, people that are seeing AUM go down, fees go down, costs go up, and realize that in order to continue in their field, they need to agglomerate more assets or sell themselves. Our view is that those type of transactions, even though they happen, are very rarely successful. It's very hard to turn around through M&A a business that's not doing well. And then you have other types of transactions. First, are more interesting, like adding capabilities. It could be adding a different type of investment capability that we don't have. It could be penetrating different markets, geographical markets, distribution markets, in which you're not. Those, I think, quite interesting in our space. This is where we spend most of the time when we look at M&A. Private markets has been a big focus for us, main area in which we look at. We haven't seen yet the bid offer spread narrow. So usually when you have periods of equity markets going down, 
people are still anchored mentally on the mark that they thought they would have had in their business two years ago. And you as a possible suitor think that, you know, markets are down 20%, surely that should be reflected somehow. And so for the first year, year and a half, the bid offer remains quite big, a bit like the property market, you know, there's less transaction until it starts compressing. Our hope is that at some point that bid offer starts compressing as people realize that some of the marks that people could have crystallized two, three years ago, either by listing their businesses or, or selling them to random people are just not there anymore. I'm fascinated about this M&A challenge that we have because I would agree that most integrations become very complicated and don't execute initially as well as you would hope as they do on paper for a number of reasons. Is success more of a definition around the softer skills of the people and the integration of that culture? Completely. Go back to what I said, when you do a in our space, you're buying contracts and those contracts are with clients and with people. And so most of the focus should be around how do you make sure that from the client point of view, to the extent they're happy with their investments, nothing changes. And from the team point of view, nothing changes. And that's all the soft stuff. It's setting the compensation structure well, setting the incentives well, and then making sure that ultimately you leave people fairly happy and standalone, particularly on the investment side, for some time. Some cases, for a long time. We bought Numeric eight, nine years ago now. And over the last eight years, it's been a very slow process of integrating them in the broader man. And we're now in the environment that I described earlier, where all the ancillary functions are integrated completely in the fabric of the business. But the investment team is very much the team that was there then. A few people have retired. But it's a team that was there then. It's the same management structure that they had. It's the same compensation structure that they had. They set their priorities the same way. They communicate themselves to investors in the same way. And that's very important, being able to keep that culture, the investment culture, very protected. I'd love to close out with a couple of questions that we ask each guest. And the first one is, everyone has a superpower. What is yours? I might challenge the fact that everyone has a superpower, but I'd say relentless curiosity. I think one thing that's driven me in my career, I'm a sort of jack of all trade with experience in finance and asset management, and then core skills in strategy, management, M&A. But it's really the curiosity of getting in the weeds, understanding complex problems and trying to solve them, often by bringing people together. And the second one is, what is the one industry book or resource you most commonly send to people? I'm afraid I don't, but I have prepared. <laughs> and I don't because... I find them quite boring, industry books. Quite often, it's really one idea that's made into a 200-page book, and you're better off just reading the cover and you know a short summary, and you get the gist of it. A book that I've sent quite a few times to people, especially in sort of environment where now everyone is sort of depressed, is called Factfulness by Hans Rasling. Actually, I spent some time with my parents, aging parents, quite recently, and my father was like worried about everything. You know, it's the end of the world. Not everything is bad. So that was something that, I've given a few times to people. I'm more a literature person. I'd rather get lost in a great novel and learn about the world through this than a frankly quite boring, usually industry book. This has been a wonderful conversation, Antoine. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me again. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.